Ecker and I are following a slightly dubious chain of connected extension leads, which have ultimately brought us to a mown path through a beautiful hay meadow overlooking the heath of the Ashdown Forest, heading for the Moth Trap Reveal. So this week our dusk walk has been rolled in to our dawn walk because Tom was here last night. I was just after sunset to the tune of night jars chirring and woodcock roading overhead, setting up a long line of extension leads and a, and a big black bucket on a white sheet with a very bright bulb. The moths are drawn to it, we'll come back to that. They fall into a funnel and then into a big bucket where they're safely stored overnight, they can roost there. Then we can carefully release them again so no moths should be harmed in the making of this podcast. see what looks like a bit of snapped off birch twig anywhere there that is a moth oh my goodness (laughs) that is quite extraordinarily convincing twig it's exactly like the color of the birch bark but at each end it's a kind of buffy color that gives it its name which is the buff tip the buff tip the buff tip and there's three or four of them i can see around the trap so they're going straight into the notebook looks very happy on your very at ease very happy here it's trying to look like a dead twig and not like something that's juicy and tasty to eat and so yeah it'll sit there until the dark comes when it will fly away so is it actually playing dead pretty much well it's roosting it's trying to be invisible as it does so how common are they it's a common moth yeah it'll turn up in many gardens should we look for another one? Yeah. What colour is your eye drawn to? Green. As the, yay, green. Yeah, we've got a beautiful, stunning moth, which I'm definitely going to post a picture of on our socials, called the Large Emerald. And it's about as big as a child's palm, and it's absolutely stunning. Butterflies and moth, their wings are made up of lots of very fine scales. And if you handle them, the scales come off, and then they're not so able to fly anymore. So it's really important to get them to climb onto you rather than you grabbing them because uh, they're so fragile. It just looks so docile. Yeah, well this is not their not their time of day. And this one looks to me like a female because she's got a very chunky abdomen which would suggest that she's full of eggs. Wow. And the other thing is you can see her little sort of orangey coloured antennae sticking out the head end there. They are unfeathered, whereas the male is likely to have really feathered antennae which he uses to detect the pheromones being released by the female so that's how they find each other in the dark there are a lot of one species <laughs> that look a little bit dull grass moths they're a bit uh, underwhelming in the looks yeah they're not they're not real lookers but that's a bit a bit harsh i mean you know when you see how smart they are in terms of being perfectly adapted to their environment and you get a closer look actually these ones are worthy of getting a hand lens onto because see there's there's lovely shimmery gold streaks running through the wing there oh yes subtle yeah (laughs) (laughs) one shouldn't be speciesist all moths are worthy of a good look i reckon Oh, there goes one. Ah, I, uh, I recognise it. Now it flutters. I recognise yeah. it as... Yeah, as, as soon as it flies, you, you recognise it as that thing that you see when you're wandering through a meadow. This is a dark arches, and it's flopping around, sort of playing dead, <laughs> which is one of the strategies that they use in their long, long evolutionary arms race with bats. They are sworn enemies. Every time the bat comes up with a new trick for catching moths on the wing, the moths come up with another trick 
to avoid being eaten. Some of the moths have developed a way of jamming the signal of bat echolocation so they can make an ultrasonic sound that interferes with the bat's interpretation of the ultrasonic sounds that it's making and therefore puts off the bat from actually finding its target. We should say that we're actually on one of your friend's farms. Yes. So it's not that everyone can set up a moth trap on the Ashdown Forest. Absolutely not. And in fact, because the Ashdown Forest is open access, it's a bit tricky to run a long extension lead out. We are overlooking the edge of the Ashdown Forest and a piece of land which is being managed by my friends who own it as a almost as an extension of the Ashdown Forest, so similar habitat types and uh, a similar approach to looking after the land. But moth traps are not, perhaps this one is quite elaborate, but moth traps are quite affordable, aren't they? They can be. I mean, the cheapest one is just to leave your bathroom window open at night and turn the light on and shut the door and then go in in the morning and see what you've got. And then it can range from that all the way up to hundreds of pounds. And are we totally sure that this is not doing them any harm? It is a little bit of a distraction from what they would normally be doing, you know, so instead of going off looking for, for nectar by night or looking for a mate and pairing off and, and doing all of that, they've been drawn in to our bulb, but they will live for several days and all of the ones that we release will still have a few more nights to have a go of that. But this is not a wasted exercise because this is field science in action. I'm going to generate a long species list of all the things that we found this morning and then I'm going to turn that into a biological record. And that becomes useful information that can hopefully help to protect special habitats. And I heard that even in London on a rooftop, you can get hundreds of different varieties of moths. Yeah, well, in Sussex, there's something in the region of about 60 butterflies that have been recorded, 60 different species. But the moth people will tell you that butterflies are just a kind of inferior day-flying offshoot of the moths. And then just to illustrate their point, there are over 2,000 moth species in the UK. So, yeah, whereas we tend to focus on the day-flying ones because we're out during the day and we get all drawn in by the lovely colours of a butterfly, never underestimate the power of a moth to make you go, wow. And aren't they the unsung pollinators of the world? All insect specialists get really wound up when people get obsessed by this idea that it's only honeybees that are the pollinators. Uh, it's honeybees, it's bumblebees, it's moths, it's butterflies, it's beetles, it's flies. The list goes on. And so it's important to remember that there's more to pollination than honeybees. And we should be trying to encourage and work to have the greatest diversity of insects as we possibly can. And on that note, coming up in the programme, we have Dave Goulson, who is the Professor of Biology at the University of Sussex and a bumblebee expert. Great hero of mine, so it's, we're glad to have him on. And the musician Sam Lee, who's known for his singing with Nightingale Evenings and who's recorded a music video on the Ashdown Forest. That was a night that I'll never forget, being out in the woods listening to nightingales and then hearing Sam and his merry band of musicians singing alongside them. It was, it was pure magic. So we've looked through all these moths, but I haven't yet asked you why are they drawn to the light? Ah, oh, that's the million dollar question. 
and uh, the science is still not fully there on it. So there's a bit of magic and mystery left in the world. Lots of people have tried to figure it out. Some people think it is to do with a relationship with the moon, which they use as a navigational aid, but I've yet to be convinced, as have many others, as to what the real reason is. So our respective alarms went at 3.45am this morning. Did we need to get up that early for this? We did. (laughs) Prove it. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, we're still here a couple of hours later and the sun hasn't quite made it over the brow of the hill yet. But as soon as it does, all these night flying moths, will that will be their cue to head off to a safe place to roost. And so if we'd come here when the sun was beating down on the moth trap, they'd all be fluttering away before we'd had a chance to have a look at them. So we haven't gone through all of them and Tom's got quite a few more to identify. He's going to be here for another hour or two. But Tom, can you reel off some of the ones that you've written down that you've seen? Okay, here goes. Buff tip, buff ermine, peppered moth, rosy footman, large emerald, common white wave, marbled white spot, garden grass veneer, broken barred carpet, uncertain, mottled beauty, bird swing, satin beauty, heart and dart, yellow conch, drinker, pine hawk moth, broom moth, and one of our favourite names this morning, the true lover's knot. Gosh, and uncertain, we've got to say, is actually a moth's name. It is a moth's name, yeah, It's exactly. not that you were uncertain. Although I often encounter uncertainty when I'm trying to identify them because there's a fair few to mix them up with. <laughs> On the heath now with Dave Gulson, who is widely agreed to be a conservation hero, and he's written many books, several about bumblebees, the bestseller, The Sting in the Tail, books about wildlife gardening, and his latest book has the slightly bleaker beginning of the title, Silent Earth, but the subtitle, Averting the Insect Apocalypse. And Dave will come on to the massive decline in insects but let's start with your passion for bumblebees and insects and in the beginning of the sting in the tail there is a litany of brutal disasters (laughs) with your shepherding of insects yeah it didn't go well to start with that's for sure now i i always i can't really explain why but when i was five six years old i was fascinated by insects just one of those things one of my earliest memories is I was at primary school at lunchtime and I saw these little yellow and black stripy caterpillars at the edge of the playground and decided to gather them all up and put them in my lunchbox and take them home and I think I managed to kill them all but I tried again and eventually they turned into these beautiful red and black moths, um, cinnabar moths. I just thought that was amazing, you know, really cool and I've been hooked ever since. Um, I guess I've been lucky that, you know, I've managed to make a living out of that sort of childhood hobby not many people get to do that I came to bees a bit later and my first love was butterflies and moths I guess because they're beautiful 
And one day I was just, I was idly watching some bees in a patch of flowers and I, I noticed this odd thing which is that bees often fly up to a flower and then at the last second they veer off as if there's something wrong with it, they don't land, they don't feed. I ended up starting doing research on trying to understand what they were doing and, and cut a long story short, it basically they sniff flowers as they approach them with their antennae. And if they can smell the, the smelly footprint of another bee having recently landed on the petals, and when they do land on petals, they accidentally leave a little kind of oily smear behind, just like we leave a fingerprint on a glass. That's a cue that the flower's going to be empty, so there's no point in landing. Anyway, sounds really kind of esoteric, doesn't it? But um, It took um, you five years, didn't it? Took it took five I, years. <laughs> I yeah. read about that. Yeah. yeah. So, Dave, in general, when you step out onto the Ashdown Forest, where do you start looking to find your bumblebees? Well, you, you do what they do, which is you head for the flowers, really. The heather, and there's a bit of bramble around, that sort of sucks in the bees, because they're both plants that they do really like the flowers off. They're good sources of nectar and pollen. What about gorse? I mean, gorse is all year round. It's not that attractive to bumbles. They do visit it if they can't find anything else, but they don't seem to show much enthusiasm for it. And you can often see a huge stand covered in, you know, those glorious yellow flowers with hardly an insect in sight. Yes, oh look, who's come on me? Oh, we've got a bumblebee on your arm. It's either a buff tail or a white tail, and, and it's almost impossible in the workers, which is what that is. She's gone. She's gone. So are there any Heathland specialist bees? There's a bumblebee, appropriately enough, called the heath bumblebee. and loves the heather itself. Something with three yellow stripes, a white bottom and a short tongue. Um, if anyone really, really wants to try looking for a heath bumblebee. Now, what's something there? It's a common blue butterfly, look. It's a male. The females are mostly brown. The males are this lovely kind of sky, sky blue. Oh, Ooh, should we go and see if he settles? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's perched, just catching a bit of sun to warm itself up. A lovely insect. I very occasionally get them in my garden and I get really excited. The, if you grow bird's foot trefoil, in, which I think is a lovely garden plant, it's the food plant of the common blue, and if you're lucky, you can get them breeding in your garden, which is rather nice. And the common blue is in the same family as the silver-studded blue slightly smaller the silver studded blue and a much rarer species that's that's a heathland specialist beautiful little things with very prominent spots on the on the undersides of the wings and they have this symbiotic relationship with black ants yeah well in fact to varying degrees most of the blue butterflies have symbioses with ants which usually involves the the caterpillars that they exude this kind of sweet substance that the ants absolutely love and in exchange the ants protect the caterpillars from parasitoids or predators or, or whatever they kind of farm them almost oh there there, there he is was that the same oh no it's a silver studded blue is it yeah a glorious little creature we've just come across on cue a silver studded blue they're very sedentary and there's one of their kind of problems is they live in a fragmented habitat, heathland, which has declined an awful lot. Sadly, lowland heaths, many of them have been ploughed up or built on. And it, the butterfly itself, it tends to stay where it was born. They don't fly more than a few metres from their home patch. So they're very poor at colonising new habitat or moving from one place to another. So they kind of tend to exist as little isolated pockets like this one here. Meanwhile, I can see some bees on the heather over there, just over here. Oh, well, there's, 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 oh, oh, 
So there is a bumblebee hoverfly. <gasps> they're, they're really handsome insects. They're, so it's a bumblebee mimic. Being a fly, it only has two wings, and a bumblebee would have four. It's furry, it's got yellow bits, it's got a white bottom, it's just doing its best to look like a buff-tail or a white-tailed bumblebee. And of course it does that to avoid being eaten. Potential predators will think it's a bee and therefore think it's got a sting. It looks so like a bee. Yeah, well that's the idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Except those wings give it away, they've got a spot on each wing? It does have little dark patches on the wings which bumblebees don't have. Why, why it's done that, I've, I've no idea. I had no idea hoverflies got that big. Yeah, there's, there's an even bigger species that mimics hornets. In the UK? Um, yeah, yeah, uh, really handsome. But these, I think, are probably my favourite hoverflies. We have some prime insect habitat right in front of us in the form of a, a delightful cowpat. Not very glamorous cowpats, but if you're an insect buff, then cowpats are amazing. So as soon as a cow dollops a pat on the ground, I literally within seconds, insects start to arrive. Usually the flies are here first, dung flies of lots of different species, and then a little bit slower because they're slower flying, dung beetles start to arrive. And you can get dozens of species in a single, single pat. And it's not just the dung-eating insects that turn up, but an army of predatory insects come to eat the dung-eating insects. So there's this entire kind of ecosystem in a cow pat. Let's have a dig. I've got a stick and uh, I, I look at all these maggots here. Loads of them oh, yeah. all wriggling around. So these will be dung flies of one sort or another. There's a kind of natural successional process in dung. When it's fairly fresh and liquid, as this is still is, you get lots of fly maggots. Of course, uh, it's getting quite strong the smell. Yeah, it is, it is quite a whiffy one, isn't it? But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that, it, it looks, it's just alive. With... Look at them, yeah. There, there are then a whole bunch of predators, so the rove beetles are a family of predatory beetles. The biggest rove beetle in the UK is the devil's coach horse, which is a really fantastic insect. Um, the devil's coach horse. Yeah, it's a great name, isn't it? Let's just, just have a, keep a bit more keep going. Oh, and there's, there's a rove beetle on the oh, surface, okay. look, running around. Oh, there, look. There, there's oh. a few more. There's rove. Yeah, these are, are rove beetles, yeah. So they're searching for little dung beetles. They wouldn't go for the maggots? No, they probably would go for the maggots. They're, they're kind of general purpose predators. They're not probably too... Well, they've got enough to gorge on there. Yeah, there's plenty to eat there. Perhaps we should leave. There's, there's the cattle. <laughs> Someone's getting very excited. Maybe they resent us. Looking messing. in their poo. <laughs> So Dave and I are sitting at a little copse now on the Ashdown Forest. So it is said that if humans were to become extinct, <laughs> biodiversity would flourish. But if insects were to become extinct, the world would collapse. Yeah. And they make up the bulk of life on Earth in terms of numbers of species and numbers of individuals. They're food for many of the things that aren't insects. So birds, bats, amphibians, freshwater fish, they all eat insects. So if the insects go, then all these other slightly larger creatures go. 
they're recyclers of cow pats and dead trees and leaves and dead bodies. And as soon as an animal dies, flies and carrion beetles and so on start arriving to, to clear it away. And so they're helping to keep the soil healthy. They help to control pests in crops. And they pollinate. They, the 80% of all the plant species on the planet need pollinating by some kind of insect. We wouldn't have anywhere near as many apples, tomatoes, blueberries, strawberries, even things like coffee and chocolate. Imagine a world without coffee and chocolate. I mean, it's Unimaginable. Into, absolutely. Um, so, so we owe them a lot, you know, and, and it's certainly true that if somehow we were to lose most of the insects, it would be a catastrophe. The message about pollination, has that has been driven home over the years. I think less known is the predation and the role that they could play instead of pesticides. Yeah, it isn't just a kind of fairy tale that, that you can use natural enemies to control insect pests. I mean, I do it in my garden all the time. I say I do it, I don't do anything. I garden organically. And as that happens every year, there are black fly aphids starting to multiply in clusters of hundreds and thousands of these little aphids and it looks awful. You could be forgiven for rushing to the shop to get a bottle of bug spray. But actually, if you do nothing, this army of predators arrives. So you get ladybirds, you get the hoverfly larvae, you get the parasitoid wasps stabbing eggs into the aphids. I mean, you get soldier beetles, you get earwigs. Uh, lace wings, just dozens of species that love to feed on those aphids. And, and within a few weeks, the aphids are gone every year, guaranteed. And on a bigger scale, you know, this is how we managed crop pests for millennia. We've only had pesticides for 80 years, really. Prior to that, farmers had to leave enough habitat on their land to encourage healthy populations of these different insects to prevent pest outbreaks. How do you think our attitude towards insects has changed? I mean, people used to have those sticky things hanging in their kitchen to kill wasps or flies. Most people don't like insects. It's, I mean, I, you know, I find it baffling because I think they're cool and amazing. But most people's reaction if something buzzes near them is not curiosity and wonder. It's, it's fright and flapping around trying to kill it. And what do you think that Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring in the 60s, would make of things now? Obviously, your recent book title refers to, to that book, Silent Earth. And we know that pesticides have only got more toxic in those years. I fear she would turn in her grave, weep. When she published Silent Springs, it was 1962. She was based in the US and there were, I think I'm right in saying, 37 pesticides available to farmers in the US. Today there are in the region of a thousand different pesticides available in the US and some of them, for example the neonicotinoids which are 7,000 times more poisonous to insects than DDT which was actually you know, the main pesticide she was focused on and did terrible environmental damage back in the 60s, 70s and 80s before it was banned. Well, in episode two, I think it was, we covered flea treatments, which comes on from that, just to linger in these horrible toxic subjects. Just briefly, do you want to say a few words on, on flea treatments and what we can encourage pet owners to do? So I mentioned these neonicotinoid insecticides, which have actually now been banned in Europe for farming use. But rather strangely, they're still widely available and used as flea treatments on dogs and cats. If you take your dog or cat into the vets, there's a very good chance they'll try and sign you up for a pet care plan as a good earner for the vets. 
which includes all the vaccinations and everything for your dog or cat, plus a monthly insecticide treatment to stop it getting fleas that you're supposed to drip on the neck of your dog. And cat. Or, or, or cat or rabbit, actually. These are relatively huge doses of insecticide, so the, the amount of imidacloprid that you're supposed to put on a medium-sized dog is enough to kill 60 million honeybees. That's why these things were banned in farming. We recently discovered that 100% of English rivers are contaminated with fipronil, one of these flea treatments, and 70% are also contaminated with imidacloprid. It turns out that most of it seems to be coming in wastewater through sewage work, so it's going down the drain. So if the dog is given a bath, then it goes down the drain. If the dog's bed is washed, loads of it goes down the drain. If you simply stroke the dog and then wash your hands, it goes down the drain. And the, the chemicals seem to go through sewage works, more or less, you know, none of it is removed. And that seems to be the biggest source of river contamination. And this is something we can't blame on farmers for once? Absolutely, nothing to do with farmers at all. This is worse in urban areas and the farmers don't use these chemicals anymore. The message of wildlife gardening has got across, but this flea treatment message I think is quite new to a lot of people and that is something else people can do. Yeah, well, so, I mean, the first thing I would say is, you know, if you do have a dog or cat, do not treat it with anything for fleas if it doesn't have fleas. <laughs> and this, that seems like a no-brainer, but this prophylactic use is very, very common. Many vets' practices recommend it. If people just only used it when they had to, that would probably get rid of 80% of the use straight away and save money. I've heard you at a talk launching one of your books saying, we'd do anything for our children except for leave them a habitable planet. Yeah, I mean, it, isn't it? it's crazy, isn't it? We have been so irresponsible. You know, we have this amazing planet. I mean, it really is, it's, it's everything. And you'd think we'd want to look after it. It should be our most treasured possession. And, of course, we would want to hand our children a planet that's at least as nice as the one that we inherited. And that isn't going to happen, sadly. But if we pull our fingers out, we can ensure that at least we hand over something which has at least some of the joy left in it. And we have these wildlife interludes in our podcast where we ask our interviewees to name a few wildlife sounds. So we give the voice over to nature for a while. Any wildlife sound that you hope your children will be listening to? <laughs> well, I, yeah, actually, I, I love the sound of... It was very appropriate here on Ashdown Forest, the sound of grasshoppers in summer. They're not particularly tuneful, but it's such a kind of summery, happy sound. And I, when I was a kid, I used to go, you know, catching grasshoppers in my hands every chance I could. And I would love for future generations to be able to hear that. Thank you, Dave. And now, to nightingales. 
which sadly haven't bred on the forest for many years, but there have been sightings of nightingales on the edges of the forest this year. And I am here with the man of the nightingales, I think it would be fair to call him, and that is Sam Lee, the musician, song collector, environmental activist and convener of the Sussex Singing with Nightingales Evenings. Oh, I love that word, convener. <laughs> I think you are a convener because your nest collective brings people together. You've even brought people together to sing a nightingale sang in Berkeley Square. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get on to nightingales, I wanted to ask you, Sam, about the fact that actually you made a music video. None of our guests so far have made music videos <laughs> on the Ashdown Forest. <laughs> I mean, I did. I did. I, a song on my last album called The Garden of England, I came here to shoot using a drone to give that sense of dreamlike quality of flying through the Ashdown Forest, which is a forest that I have spent so much time in. And I came to film it here because this is a place that, for me, every path and every little gully and muddy spot and bit of gorse seems to hold a sense of huge potency and store of, of story. The old wild never wears thin Sweet as the birds in the spring, the spring Home is when the heart sings, heart sings The songs are turned of our own kids and kin The old wild never wears thin The old wild never wears thin Sweet as the birds in the spring, the spring. Home is when the heart sings, heart sings. The songs that tell of our own kith and kin. The old world never wears thin. The old world never wears thin. In your book, you compare the amount of different sounds a blackbird makes to a nightingale, and a nightingale makes many more. But you also do admit or say that some people find the blackbird's song even sweeter than the nightingale. It isn't just about the beauty of the nightingale's song, it's about the virtuosity of it. Could you say a bit more about the actual mm. sound of the nightingale to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I always falter when it comes to kind of trying to describe the nightingale song because it's, it's so mystical and every time you hear nightingale, he is revealing something completely different and it's like the free jazz player you know if you heard it you kind of go oh god maybe that's not what i want to go and listen to for two and a half hours but then when you sit in the presence of the bird there's something about their command of space of silence they're not obeying all the senses of prettiness or rhythmicalness or although they have that in them, it's so many characters in there, as though the bird is been inhabited by many different voices. And I think that is part of their spell. They're like a character actor, a kind of complicated, a hard living type actor mm. who has a lot more to say on the world. And they have been revered in so many different cultures, as your book explains. I mean, their song is admired internationally and so many different cultures have so many different associations and stories and songs connected to the nightingale. Mm. 
So just to describe your singing with Nightingale's Evenings, what you do is a, quite a small gathering, maybe 40 people come, and you go out in the, day, in the early evening and you listen and explain a bit about Nightingale's. Then we sit around the campfire and then around 11pm we go and listen to the Nightingale and you sing with it and play with it and maybe you're accompanied by a musician who also joins in. And the evening that, that I went, the marsh frogs actually almost upstaged the nightingale. They were making <laughs> such a tropical sound. But I wondered, you get so many musicians to play with the nightingales. Have you found that they respond better with the human voice or with a type of music or with instrumental, the cello and the violin more mm. than... What have you found? I think it would be convenient to say the cello or the violin because, you know, they have such legacy with the Nightingale through Beatrice Harrison. I'll be asking you about that, yeah. And, but actually, it's not about the instrument. It's about the instrumentalist or the singer. We can have three cellos or three flute players in a row and the bird will respond completely different to each one. They really do recognise the spirit of the person. Sometimes other musicians just get on so well with the nightingale that you can see they'd 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 mate and have young together if they could, <laughs> <laughs> and the bird will sing in such correspondence, and it could be the same instrument as we've had the night before. I can imagine that it's more about being a good listener to be able to really listen to the nightingale before you respond. Very much, I see musicians, some of whom are world-class musicians who come and have a mind-blowing experience. I've had a few that have said that I've never had a collaboration like it. I've never felt more connected and more challenged and more in connection with my musical partner as with that bird. a little bit about their migration and how they get here. Well, they fly all the way, no public transport. <laughs> um, in July, August, they will fly down through France, Spain, round the west coast of Africa to Senegal and Sierra Leone and Guinea-Bissau, where they overwinter. In your book, there's a picture of a stork, not a nightingale, but a stork with a spear through it. And mm. before that stork was found in Germany people didn't realise that birds migrated. It, it was one of the clues to migration. Could, could you just say a little bit more about that? Indeed, yeah. I mean, this is an incredible moment where thousands of years of wonderful stories of where birds went when they disappeared into the mud and all sorts of, you know, up into the moon 
comes to a scientific conclusion when a German vicar in a town of Mecklenburg finds a stork who's come back to nest, but the stork has a spear through their neck. And that spear on capture and identification was, I think, maybe a Zulu spear. And then it clicked that this bird was disappearing there and it had come to scrapes with a hunter, survived and come back with its bit of archaeology. I mean, the spear in the picture is as tall as the stalk and it has flown all the way from Africa successfully yes. to Germany. The one that got away. <laughs> Staggering. And when you book an evening with the nightingales, you send a really well-considered few paragraphs to explain that you have really thought through the impact of your singing mm. on the nightingales and it's been endorsed by the Royal Society of the Protection of Birds and by the British Trust of Ornithology and I, I really appreciated those words that you sent and also that actually that group of nightingales is increasing mm. since your presence. Yes, whether our presence arriving and their increase is connected, I'll never know, but we're not having a detrimental effect. For me, the, the practice in this work of conservation of just let nature be alone, let's not, just don't touch it or get involved and it'll be okay, is actually one of the most dangerous attitudes there is. Art is one of the most important weapons we have in the combating the ecological crisis because it's one of the few ways that really truly speaks to people to bring about change and, and confront the impossibility of continuing as we are. In the book you have a quote from Gustav Mahler. I don't know if you can remember it off pat, but it very much responds to what you're just saying. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. His line is, tradition is tending the flame and not worshipping the ashes. It's true to say that the cost of a visit to the singing with nightingales is the equivalent of a night at the West End Theatre, except you get a lovely meal and it's a very long evening. And you're very generous in your book about how you very much are encouraging people to do it themselves. Mm. And you give these lovely tips on how to go about it and how to be respectful if you do find some nightingales that you can sit with for a while in the in the late night. Um, actually, one of my favourite lines of your book, which is mostly so very lyrical, and this is lyrical in its way, is that there's an inverse relationship. You say something like this. There's an inverse relationship between the expense and the high techness of your outdoor clothing and the rustling sounds that you will make to spoil the nightingale song. <laughs> and everyone should be wearing wool because it really can ruin the whole effect if you've got 30 to 40 people rustling. Yep. Art is one of the most powerful things we have and if we don't have art and culture in our lives then we have no purpose on this planet. And as an experience, it's completely underpriced <laughs> and it's also vastly too expensive for my liking because I want it to be free and I want this to be something that is utterly accessible but it needs the guides, it needs an infrastructure to do it and within it, it needs to challenge people to reflect upon the absurdity of our lives that we don't sit around campfires on gorgeous May evenings we're sitting and watching Eurovision and things like that and and somehow we've excluded the great wonders of this world that are slipping away around us and you realize how we live with a baseline of constant stimulation that nobody has really sat in darkness and silence and how vital that is for our minds and bodies 
So you, I think we could safely say, have become the man of the nightingale, the gentleman of the nightingale, in, in England at least. But there was a lady of the nightingale before you. And amazingly, she was connected with one of the first outdoor broadcasts of the BBC and was a wonderful eccentric who was also a collector of alligators and menagerie <laughs> of, of animals. Could you just briefly tell a little bit about her? Yeah, so Beatrice Harrison, who in 1924 convinced the BBC to pioneer the first ever live radio broadcast outside of the studio, which kind of wonderful that it was a bird and the cello and... Um, she was a cellist, just to explain. She was a cellist. She was the muse of Elgar, so she was a quite a renowned one. And she really did become a sort of great sort of advocate for Nightingale. She was part of the early days of the RSPB and a real campaigner for awareness of this. And at a time where we were really beginning our sort of disconnect from nature, as, you know, 1920s, you know. It was all about modernity and prosperity and progress and soft touches like listening to Nightingale in spring might have felt very outmoded. And I think she did a wonderful job of going, you know, it's good enough for me. I'm not embarrassed by this. Finally, Sam, only if you're in the mood, is it possible for you to do a very brief snatch of song which just might lear the nightingales back here to the Ashdown Forest? Oh, yes. <laughs> which of your songs which would be most you? likely to lear nightingales back to the Ashdown Forest? Um... It would be the verse from the Tanyard side, which is my kind of, my real, that's my favourite, the Nightingale songs. And the verse is... It is twelve long months since first we met So early in the spring When the small birds they do land the nightingales do sing